So during our time together in God's Word today, we are going to be talking about mission drift. It's not just what happens in corporations and businesses. Um, it's something that happens with Christians. Maybe we should call it Messiah drift instead of mission drift. Um, you thought you were in a certain place, and before you know it, you're in a totally different place. And how, did, how in the world did that happen? So we're going to talk about mission drift slash Messiah drift because it's a thing. It actually is a problem. It's a problem for professing Christians like us. It's a problem for local congregations like this one. It's a problem for churches in Omaha, Nebraska, and the world beyond. How in the world did we start at a certain place and end up somewhere radically different? Well, we drift away. We don't keep our eyes focused on what we need to keep our eyes focused on, namely Jesus. And the Bible addresses this, and it addresses it by saying this. Pay attention. Pay careful attention. And those are the kind of words we're going to see in the Bible today. Pay more careful attention. Pay closer attention. And this is my paraphrase. To Jesus and the gospel. Because if you don't, before you know it, though you once were there, you've drifted away and are totally somewhere else. And you've lost sight of the prize, so to speak, of the destination, ultimately, of the Messiah. And this is going to mean today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. It's going to be Hebrews chapter 2. I love Hebrews chapter 2. Um, it ranks right up there for me with Romans chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I have a tendency when we're in between book studies to go to my favorite passages. So that's what we're doing this morning. So we just finished the book of Acts. If you're joining us, you're new to Omaha Bible Church. Typically we're in a book of the Bible going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we just finished a lengthy study in the book of Acts. Uh, we've got something coming in the book of Exodus and the Exodus themes. Uh, but today I've chosen Hebrews 2 because it deals with mission drift which is always a problem. It's always something there lurking and waiting for us because we, if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus before you know it, uh, who knows what we're believing, who, who knows what our purpose is, and we've lost sight of things. So Hebrews 2, I also chose Hebrews 2 because some of my favorite passages are hard passages because they're the ones that you read the first time and maybe the first 10 times and you think, I've got more questions than I have answers. And those are the kind of passages that I tend to like because it causes me to roll my sleeves up and study and really dig in, try to figure it out so I can make it simple and clear to other people so that you can be encouraged by that. So Romans 5 is that way. Hebrews 2 is definitely that way. And so today we're going to focus on this matter of mission drift, Messiah drift. The tone is going to be when he says in our text, pay much closer attention. The tone is probably depending on where you are. If I, let, me, let me explain. If I say to you, pay attention, or pay attention, or oh, pay attention, depending on how I say it, might carry a bit different emotion and weight to it. So, so if your child, if you're teaching a class and you have to say to a student who's not doing well, pay attention, that carries a certain kind of gravitas to it. But if you're with a friend watching a mystery 
with a, with a deep plot with all kinds of twists and turns and you say, pay attention because you've seen it before and they haven't carries a different kind of emphasis. Well, it, the book of Hebrews is probably dealing with a mixed kind of congregation. This is an early church, probably in Jerusalem. Uh, they've trusted in Christ. They've at least made professions to trust in Christ. But you know what? It sure seems like there's a lot of pressure from people's families, from the culture at large, religiously, socially. Maybe we should go back to Judaism. Doesn't seem like we have a lot going on for us here. Uh, what kind of savior is this who doesn't seem to, to deliver? And so some are healthy Christians. They, they, they need the friendly, pay attention. But some are, are, are really, really close to compromising and saying, I'm just going to go back. And they need to hear the more of the severe, pay attention kind of thing. So I, I, I'm not trying to be postmodern and say it means whatever it means to you. But I'm saying it's written to a congregation. All different kinds of people. And the book of Hebrews sometimes has this very compassionate tone. And sometimes it has a very severe tone. And at the beginning of the book probably depends on who you are and where you are in things. So, depending on who you are and where you are in things. Depending on where we are as a congregation and where we are in things. I might say it a certain way to a certain congregation and I would say it a different way to a different congregation. But know this, if you don't think there's a problem with drifting away, you haven't been reading your Bible, like Psalm 78 this morning. Um, you, you haven't been paying attention to other people you haven't been paying attention to other churches, even in our day, even in our city. You haven't been paying attention to church history. There is an awful, awful tendency to drift away and lose sight of things. And you think, what in the world happened? And we want to have a cure to that today. So it starts with this exhortation. How about chapter 2, verse 1? It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention. There it is. Pay attention. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The therefore probably goes back to chapter 1 because we have the ultimate revelation from God. Right? God has spoken in many ways, through many means, prophets and so on and so forth. Hebrews 1 one and following, but it says there in Hebrews 1, 1 and following, but in these last days, in these climactic days, this is what the days we've been waiting for, ultimately, He's revealed Himself. He's spoken through His, what? Through His Son, right? It's the grand declaration. It's the great, it's the great speaking. And if God has done this through His Son, the gospel, all that the Son has done to make perfect atonement for sins, that everything else was anticipating Him, He says, therefore we must pay much closer attention. Well, lest we drift away. He uses boating terminology, right? Sea craft. Nautical terminology. You need to have your eyes, your focus on, on your destination where you need to go. Focus on that target, on that spot, and don't take your eyes off of it because if you do, before you know it, you're a little ways off. And then before you know it, the little ways off is way, way, way off. So he uses that kind of analogy. The Apostle Paul likes this. Remember, he says to Timothy, he talks about some, pe some people who make shipwreck of the faith. That's what we don't want to have happen here. 
That's exactly the opposite of what we want to have happen here. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. In other words, stay the course. Don't drift away. Pay much closer attention. And how many ways do you think there are to drift away from Jesus as the one true living Savior who made perfect atonement for sins? That we're to preach Christ and only Christ, not ourselves. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. How many different ways would there be to drift away? I don't have enough fingers, right? Think about it. If there's one Savior, in a certain sense, there's there's countless ways to drift away. It could be this, it could be that, it could be all kinds of things. Well, he doesn't get into all of those and we don't need to. But it's pretty easy to drift away unless we know that he is the final, ultimate, climactic revelation from God. We need to pay attention to him and to his gospel, but we tend to have what I would call gospel ADD, right? Well, I know the gospel. I don't need to focus on the gospel. That's for unbelievers. That's not true. And why is it that when we hear people promoting things that aren't biblical, we're so drawn in? Been watching the news lately? Huh. We're so distracted by anything and everything as Christians other than Christ and other than the gospel, the things that's of first importance. And if we really, really were captured by him and his greatness and his grandeur, it's the good news of all good news. We wouldn't be so apt to fall for everything and anything under the sun. We have to pay much closer attention because we're so easily distracted. And now he gets into the reasons. So verses 2 and following, he gets into the rationale of all of this. And I won't lie to you, some of these things at first are not that easy to understand, but with a little bit of help, I think you'll be able to go home and read it today and go, that makes total sense. I don't know what he did all week. (laughs) All he had to do is just read the passage to us. Well, Let's figure out motivation for paying closer attention to Jesus. That's what I want, to, I want you to do now. Hopefully I've, I've emphasized verse 1. It needs to be done, I'm saying to you. But now, why? What, what's so special about him? Tell me why Jesus is even better than I thought he was. Impress me with Jesus. It's not very hard. It happens in chapter 2, and it's wonderful. How about verse 2? For since, here's the rationale, for since the message declared by angels, probably referring to the law of God, no doubt referring to the law of God, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution or just payment, that's equity, that's fairness, how shall we escape escape divine retribution in the context, uh, divine payment, if you will, justice, if you will, if we neglect such a great salvation. And he's saying that it's impossible. It's impossible. He's appealing to people who believe God's law to be true, who know something about the Old Testament and its history, and they're being reminded that, you know, God hasn't fallen asleep. There are consequences. God's law is reliable um, in New Testament terms. The wages of sin is death. We, we all know this to be true. And so if we drift away from Christ, are you out of your mind thinking there's hope through something else? You would be, have to be out of your mind. If you're going to drift away from Christ, 
Knowing what you know about God and His justice, knowing what you know about God and His law, are you crazy? You'll know that there's no other hope. Don't drift away from Christ. We must pay much closer attention, is what he's saying. Otherwise, we're smoked. And maybe the secondary application, if we who maybe believe this to be true, stop speaking as if it's true, we're not offering people any hope. We're not offering what they need to hear. Knowing what you know about God and His justice, God and His righteousness, why in the world would we drift away from preaching Christ as the thing that people need to hear in Omaha, Nebraska? We, we, we would be out of our minds. We must pay much closer attention to what God has said through His Son. Judgment. We see it here. Payment. Hebrews 10 will say later, in a more severe tone, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So accept no substitutes. Okay, let's move on. Now we proceed and we move on to a reminder about the authenticity of the gospel as it is stated. How about this in verse 3? It, the revelation of the Son, in other words, the gospel, it was declared at first by the Lord, right? Jesus himself, the divine Son, uh, the eternal pre-existent one who became a human being. It was at first declared by the Lord, the gospel was, and it was attested to us by those who heard, remember eyewitnesses, or as I like to say, earwitnesses, they're both like Dr. Luke and Luke and Acts. So first declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Verse 4, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles. So there are those extraordinary things that we read about in the gospel accounts and the book of Acts, early church stuff, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Things given to the church. So these are these are supporting evidences that what God said through His Son is true, and they're not iffy supporting witnesses. So why believe the gospel? Well, because of Jesus and his resurrection and what he said to be the meaning of what he did. That's true. But we also had those who were eyewitnesses, earwitnesses, right? We also had the unique, extraordinary signs and wonders. And we also had the gifts given to the church. You know, there's pretty good support for why you should pay much closer attention to Jesus. More attention than you should pay to anything else. So that, that that's helpful. It's plentiful. There's corroboration. It's reliable. Then when we move on to the next portion in verse 5, what we end up seeing is a big emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and the suffering of Jesus. And reading between the lines, it seems that he needs to emphasize the humility, humanity, and suffering of Jesus. Because sometimes it doesn't seem like a very great salvation. If he's the great deliverer, why am I not yet delivered? Right? If he's the great savior, why am I suffering? If he's the great Messiah, why is it that I face all this opposition for believing in him? And so what the author of Hebrews does is he does a bit of a deep dive into the humanity of Jesus. That he needed to become one of us. And it was by divine intention that he suffered. And it was by divine intention that he was crucified because he would conquer sin and death. And so he goes there. Okay? 
Maybe in the people's minds it was, you know what? If I really was going to have a great Savior, my life would be better right now. Think about it. And I wouldn't be ostracized by my family members for believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And I wouldn't face the difficulty with my health that I face because after all, what about ultimate deliverance? They have these questions, okay, going on here. So what he's going to do is say, let's talk about the humanity of Jesus. I think this is actually really important because lots of Christians don't know much about the humanity of Jesus. Ask Christians, why did he need to be a human being? And at least in our current time, uh, we, we, we got really good at defending his deity. And we have to be able to answer the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to our doors. And he's not just a God. He's the God before Abraham was. I am. And it's really important. Deity is super important. Don't get me wrong. But it's actually also super important that he's a real human being. Okay? So let's learn about his humanity. It's emphasized in Hebrews chapter to verse 5. Verse 5 says, Now, it was not to angels, think the flashy ones, it was not to angels, the ones we tend to think of as great and flashy, that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Not in any ultimate sense anyway. How about verse 6? It has been testified somewhere. He's going to quote Psalm 8, so that's kind of an odd, vague way to say uh, it's in Psalm 8. It's testified somewhere. Now, maybe he's being sarcastic because they, they all know Psalm 8. They, they all know about the greatness of the human race made in God's image. Maybe it's that. I don't know for sure. But it's been testified somewhere. We, we know that it's Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 goes on. It's recorded in our text in verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And I'm reading it that way on purpose. Because in the psalm, isn't it amazing that God made human beings to be special? Isn't it amazing that He made us to be somewhat like Him? That we are the image bearers to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it like in the garden. It's a psalm that's emphasizing the extraordinary nature of human nature. That's why I read it that way. And I think it's for good reason and for right reason when we read verse 6 where it says son of man. I think it's good to remember lowercase son of man. Now, translators make that choice and they don't always make it consistently. But so far, when you read Psalm 8 and so far in Hebrews, I don't think he's talking about Jesus yet. He's just talking about human beings. Okay, he's just talking about human beings in general. It's, it's wrong to think low of human beings. Then let's keep going. Continuing to quote Psalm 8. You made him for, this is in verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I'm still going to suggest that you avoid the temptation of reading that as Christ. We're going to get there. Don't get me wrong. But if you think about the garden and what Adam's responsibility was, he was to subdue it. He was to have dominion over it, right? Over the whole creation. That was how it was supposed to be. So I'm going to, I'm going to do it that way. I'm, I'm in good company too. I'm not just making this kind of stuff up because of what I had for dinner or I had a, I, I'm in a bad mood or something. Let, let's just leave it. Let's leave it. Hu, the human race as in represented by Adam. 
Well, let me ask you, how did it turn out? Turned out awfully. Turned out terribly. He, He didn't do what he was called to do. That's why we're in the mess we're in. But do note that to be a human is not a bad thing. God made human beings to do the right thing in a glorious way, imitating Him. I think that's the idea so far. This sets the stage for us to learn about the one who is called in 1 Corinthians 15, the what? The last Adam, who is Jesus, who's going to be successful at doing the Psalm 8 stuff. I think that's the idea. And so I'm always going back and forth when I read Psalm 8. It's like, oh, got to think about the first Adam. But you know what? We know how that ends. And we've got to think about the, the last Adam, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. And he's going to be successful. That's why I want to trust in him. I want him to be my representative. And so now I think we're starting to get that flavor. Okay, in verse 8, we're, the second part of verse 8, now all of a sudden we're starting to move our way into that. Verse 8 says, the latter part, now in putting everything in subjection to him, I'm going to read Jesus now. He left nothing outside his control. I'm starting to think about Christ. I'm starting to think about the everything and the nothing. And I'm starting to think about the one who did it successfully, the one who was the victor, the one who was the champion representative, not like the failure representative. Verse 8 ends by saying, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, Because we don't see it, there's the temptation to drift away. He's asking you to see Jesus' work as complete, but in anticipation of his return, we don't see it yet, but it doesn't mean it's not a reality, is what he's asking you to do. How about verse 9? But we, the believer, but we, though we don't see it yet, we see him. For a little while was made lower than the angels. Oh, yeah, that's true of the incarnate Christ. Namely, Jesus. Oh, okay. So where where exactly the shift happens, I don't know exactly. But you see it anticipated in verse 8. And for sure it happens in verse 9. We're talking about the ultimate ruler over dominion over person representative. You get the idea. And it's Jesus. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Oh, isn't that interesting? The suffering and death is actually part of it as the last Adam. And it's because of the suffering and death that it leads to glory and honor being crowned as king. That's kingly terminology. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You could even translate it everything in light of Colossians 1.20. Everything is in subjection to him. He's that one. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign. So when we think about Jesus, yes, humble, yes, suffering, humiliated, crucified, died. But when we start seeing it according to divine design, you say, oh, okay. Makes more sense. Crowned with glory and honor. But notice it's all part of a plan. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death. See, by design, it's atonement. The humanness is not a glitch. It's actually how it has to be if we're going to have our sins atoned for. 
And we're human beings, and so we need a human being representative to make atonement for our sins. It's as if the the author of Hebrews is saying, I'm kind of glad for these objections. Let, Let me help you understand a little bit better. Adam theology, let's call it. Human representation. He's not using that verbiage. He's not using Apostle Paul verbiage. But he's talking about those very same things. How about verse 10? For it was fitting. See, this is this is by design. This is how it needs to be. The, the puzzle pieces actually fit. For it was fitting that he, I think God the Father in context, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that would be re- through redemption, should make the founder, I like the King James here because of the nautical terminology only uh, earlier, to make the captain, don't drift away, to make the captain of their salvation, now Jesus, perfect through suffering. It's fitting that this is how it goes. Because the captain of the ship, right? The leader of the people the, is the redeemer. And so this isn't, again, a problem. This actually is how it's supposed to be. It's fitting that it would be this way. I love this. It's no wonder it begins with, we must pay must much closer attention to Jesus. Because He is credible. Not incredible. He's the one. Redemption. He brings them. Right? Safe sailing. (laughs) The many sons of glory. He's the founder, the captain of their salvation. If you're a Christian, I like that. He's the captain of my salvation. No wonder it's by grace alone, through faith alone. He's the founder of our salvation. He's He's the representative. He's the captain. He leads. It's wonderful. Fitting for God to redeem sons by the Son, who's a human and divine. Does say that, how does he say it? He says, the found, to, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Was Jesus perfect when he was born? Absolutely Jesus was perfect when he was born. Did he, did he become more perfect? I'm giving you the kind of side Ozzy, my dog look when I ask her if she wants a treat. <laughs> right? The Scooby-Doo like, hmm? Remember, he is focusing on the humanity of Jesus. <clears throat> Hebrews 5.8 says, He learned obedience. As a man, he did. Luke 2.40, he, he increased in wisdom as a child. Right? He, he came to borrow from Jesus elsewhere. and Matthew 5, he came to fulfill all righteousness. Doing the right thing, suffering because he's acquainted with sorrows and grief of his people. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. And he's suffering all along throughout this broken time in this world. And the Apostle Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2 that he suffered. And it says, even, he's obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The culminating low point, high point It's in his office. He does this. One one commentator put it this way. 
This involves his whole incarnate experience. And another author puts it this way. He lived a life of suffering not as a private individual, but as a public representative, winning our redemption as much by his incarnation and daily obedience as by his death and resurrection. Right? Making atonement, but also providing all the right righteousness, if you will, that we would need. It's wonderful. I say, what a Savior. The true and better Adam, Christians sing. Yeah, that's right. Okay, you guys doing okay? I'm having the time of my life talking about a favorite text that's kind of hard to understand and it's kind of not hard to understand if we're paying attention. We need Him to be one of us, to be our Savior. Okay, let's keep going. Next little section in verse 11, that really, it's really going to emphasize solidarity, togetherness. How about verse 11? For he who sanctifies, um, it seems to me that that's Jesus here in this context. And those who are sanctified, that would be Christians, all have one source. You might even have a footnote. It says, all are of one. They're united. And let's just use sanctify, sanctify here in a very generic sense. Let's just cleansed, set apart, made Cleansed is good, pure. Let's just think of it in those terms. And thinking of it in those terms, he who, Jesus, who cleanses, who sanctifies, and those who are the cleansed, if you will, spiritually, all have one source. Jesus is the son, according to chapter 1, verses 2 and 5. We're called sons in verse 10 of chapter 2. So he's the son, we are sons. Maybe a reference to the father who does this. We're, we're all part of God's family. Through the cleansing one, we're cleansed and it makes us part of God's family. There's a spiritual unity, there's a solidarity. Let's keep going in verse 11. That is why, I love this, this is so good. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call you a sibling, is the idea. Because, think about this, think about this, because he's the sanctifier and he sanctified you, right? He's the one who cleans up, he's the one who makes atonement, if you will, and you've had your sins atoned. You've been cleaned up, if you will, spiritually. And therefore, don't miss this, he's not ashamed to call you one of his siblings, Think about what this isn't. Think about having a sibling, a brother or sister, who's done some unthinkable kinds of things. And it causes you to be what? Starts with an A. Ashamed. I'm ashamed because that happened in my family. Hopefully it's not happened in your family. Think of someone else. <laughs> you understand. Why, but please, please get this. Why would Jesus not be ashamed of you, a sinner, who has never once in your life loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, perfectly, personally, and perpetually? You haven't, I haven't, no one has other than Jesus. I want to push it a little bit and say, Jesus should be ashamed if he hadn't suffered and died for you and fulfilled all righteousness for you. See, it's substitution. Substitution. He, he, because he's the sanctifier, 
He's like, Pat Abendroth, you might all think he's kind of a shady character. And you might be right. (laughs) I sanctified him. I'm not ashamed of him. Before the judgment of God, he's perfect. I I mean, it doesn't get better than this. If you trust in Jesus, he cleans you up. So much so that there's no shame. Not because you're a good person who cleaned up your life, but because he's the sanctifier. And so he says, yep, he's mine. It's it's awesome. No other religion in the whole world like it. So why in the world would we drift away when it comes to Messiah mission? Why in the world would we believe something different? Why in the world would we, as a local congregation, commit ourselves to prioritizing anything other than the proclamation, the promotion, and the defense of that? We, can, we, we have nothing better to offer people. Nothing better. We never will. It's just wonderful what's happening here in the logic and the argumentation. Jesus is better than I even thought he was. Not ashamed to call them brothers. Okay, we'd better move on. Now what he's going to do, in this final little section here, he's, he's going to offer three Old Testament statements, and he's going to use them in relationship to Christ, emphasizing again solidarity. We're together, we're inseparable, and prepare to be impressed, by the way. First one is Psalm 22. You know Psalm 22 because Jesus quotes it on the cross, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 22. But also it says, how about verse 12? Saying, I... He, he's using, he's putting these words into Jesus' mouth. I, Jesus, will tell of your name, God's name, talking to the Father. I, Jesus, will tell of your name, God, Father, to my, oh, brothers, siblings. That's us. In the midst of the congregation, it's actually the word typically translated church. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. This is going to be, this is, this is great. Do you, do you see why it's so great? What's great is not my explanation of it. Do, do you see what we just read and why it's so great? That putting those words in the mouth of Jesus, that in the midst of the church, in the midst of the assembly, he is telling his siblings, singing, he says, of the greatness of God and the promises of God and the fidelity of God. And there are all the promises being yes and amen in him. It, absolutely. This, this verse, this chapter changed my whole perspective on church life. On corporate worship even. That we don't just gather for a big Bible study. That there's something formal and important and extraordinary that happens in church. So when I go to a conference and hear thousands and thousands of people singing and I kind of get the shivers, I try to remember this text. And that what happens here on a Sunday morning is more significant than the conference. Jesus didn't promise to gather in the midst of the conference. But he did promise to do so in the midst of the ecclesia, the church. Something extraordinary happens. I think, I think it's Sinclair Ferguson who says he tries to remember and pretend as if in a certain sense that when he holds the hymnal, he's holding it with Jesus. 
I don't know how that works for us because we don't have hymnals. <laughs> you get the idea. Might not seem like it. Oh, right, right? It might not seem like it. Think with me about this. It for sure did not seem like it for the first century Christians living in Jerusalem. That's actually why this text actually carries such a big punch in a good way. Why it's such good balm. First century church, you're in Jerusalem. And what do you have? Maybe you gathered in a friend or relative's uh, house, their flat, their apartment. First century world, you can hear what's going on outside. The chameleons are coming in and out as they like. You get the idea. It's pretty free-flowing in Jerusalem. And the temple is still there when this letter is written. And they still have priests and they still have sacrifices and they still have the musicians and they still have the incense and you can still smell the meat burning. And what do you have in your friend or relative's flat? Some other Christians, part of a Bible, Old Testament, some maybe New Testament letters. You don't have those professional musicians. You don't have the smells and bells. You don't have all the extrasensory, awesome, emotionally driving things that the temple offered. It's just the 12 of you sitting there thinking about going back. And what does he say? To all you people who don't think you have anything and you're thinking about going back, Jesus promises to be in the midst of the congregation boasting in his father's goodness and promises to his spiritual siblings the ones he has sanctified it's so good it's so one it's a great picture we get excited about the wrong things we think the extraordinary is where it's at and in reality for these folks it's in the ordinary is where it's at Pardon my bad English. It's a, it's a wow factor going on here. We better move on. I just had the best time of my life just thinking about it. Then it says, to quote another Old Testament text in verse 13, and again, this time referring to Isaiah 8, and again, I will put my trust in him. So Isaiah had to put his trust in God when he was belittled. He had to trust God for vindication. Um, Jesus put his trust in his father when he was persecuted, suffered and died for vindication, which would happen at his resurrection. And by extension, we as believers have to put our trust in God, right? When we're taking it on the chin for belonging to Jesus. And remember, he was vindicated. We might not be vindicated until our resurrection, but it is coming. I will put my trust in him. That's why you keep focusing on Jesus. Let's keep going in verse 13. And again, Isaiah 8 also, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus trusted in his Father, and he calls the children given to him to trust in the Father as well. We won't take the time to go there, but how about that? The children given by the Father to the Son. That could be a whole sermon. That's John chapter 10. That's John chapter 17. That's covenant of redemption kind of stuff. Ephesians chapter 1. Children given to the Son by the Father. 
How grand is that? Verse 14 says, let's keep going. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, so it's co- we commonly have this as humanity, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Think incarnation. We need him to be one of us. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. How about that? And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Deliverance, redemption, salvation. Why, why would Ultimately, Satan's been defeated. Why would we drift away from him? It would be insane to drift away from him. Why would Omaha Bible Church prioritize proclaiming something else? Well, verse 17, for surely it is not angels that he helps. I like the graphic, helps. It says, literally, he seizes, he grabs them, like to rescue them, to save them. Not because he's mean, but because he's, he's kind. Surely it's not the angels that he seizes and delivers, but he helps, he takes hold of and delivers the offspring of Abraham. Remember, Abraham is marked in the Bible because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he seizes, he saves, he delivers believers. 17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So it's not bad that he became a human, it's good that he became a human in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice service of God. He was sent by his father, right? And makes atonement, appeases his wrath, but to make propitiation, to make atonement, to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. You need him to be a human being because you are one and you are a sinner. (laughs) And he is your hope. Then verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help. He's able to save. Right? He's the seizing one, so he saves, he delivers. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Is that the last verse? I don't want it to be over. Remember! Please remember! Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay much closer attention. Wonder what kind of new program we should do. Wonder what's going on over here that seems super exciting and super extraordinary and super amazing. You know what I need to tell you? You must pay much closer attention to Jesus. Because it seems like we have nothing. But if we have Jesus, we have everything. We have everything. I love what it says in Hebrews elsewhere. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith. May God help us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great time and a great text like Hebrews chapter 2. Please help us. Help us to not take ourselves too seriously, but to take the gospel seriously. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a great triumphant Savior seriously. He loved us and gave himself up for us. It is so easy for us to be distracted. Help us to not be distracted as a church. Help us to be all in and all about this. Help us to learn from the church's history, from the people of God's history, that we wouldn't think highly of ourselves, that we wouldn't be proud, and we wouldn't be arrogant, 
but that we would be people who know that we've been forgiven and are eager to tell other people about how it is they can be forgiven too. In Jesus' name, amen.